Are you listening? I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook, and welcome to Direct Snap. And this is our first episode in the leadoff podcast and a host of podcasts we're rolling out this year at Football Game Plan. And Direct Snap is going to be a show where we address controversial football topics that many want to either avoid completely or tap dance around. And what a way to kick this off by talking about football's greatest scapegoat, the black quarterback, and why it's probably the toughest job in football. But first, Follow us on Twitter at FBall Game Plan. I'm also on Instagram at Football Game Plan. Facebook fan page, Football Game Plan. YouTube.com slash Football Game Plan. And also on the website, we archive all of our podcasts and shows at FootballGamePlan.com slash podcast. Now let's jump into the topic. Why is the black quarterback the hardest job in football? Well, first of all, I believe there's no room for error for these guys. They aren't allowed to throw in completions. They can't throw interceptions. They can't take sacks. And God forbid they're the reason why they lost the game. All hell will break loose in the media. And that's the second point. You know, it's the power of the written and broadcast media. That's radio and TV. That's newspapers. That's bloggers. Even on Twitter, those Twitter analysts are Twitter reporters. Any black quarterback mistake will get enhanced and blown up to epic proportions. And there's no second chances for these guys. You don't see a lot of black backup quarterbacks. And before people instantly hit me up and, and say, well, what about Charlie Batch? What about Jason Campbell? What about Seneca Wallace? What about Michael Vick? What about Rodney Pete? What about David Garrard? The point is that they're the outliers. They, they are the exception to the rule because a lot of times it, it goes, and we're going to get into this later, but it goes into uh, what the expectation is of these guys coming in. Um, but first, First thing I want to talk about is how they are taught, and that goes back to the Little League and the high school level. I played Little League football. I started when I was five years old. So let's say when you're around six or seven is the average age, I believe, a lot of kids start playing football. You have these guys that may be a little bit faster, maybe taller, maybe a little bit quicker, a little bit more athletic than the rest of the team. And so coaches figure out where they want to put these guys. I remember when I first started playing football um, at five years old, I was a center you know, because I was a little chunky kid, so they put me on the offensive line. Although in my mind, I thought I was a receiver. But my body dictated that I should be playing on the offensive line until I grew into my body and things of that nature. But so you have those guys that may be a little bit more athletic that want to play quarterback. Um, but you wonder if, they're, if they are being developed as football players or is it selfish coaching where they have guys that are there to coach to win. They want to – you know, brag around town, hey, my Little League team, my Pop Warner team is the best in the city. Are they really developing talent? Are they just letting this guy freelance? Because you see, let's say with baseball, I would say maybe how baseball teaches technique and fundamentals. Football has to be taught the same way, especially at quarterback. If you're going to be handling the football each and every down, there's a technicality to that. And I think that's one thing that gets lost when you have a guy that may have some speed or may have some athleticism, you want him to get out there and run around and help you win football games. I get that, but you stunt their growth by doing so. And you see that at both the little league level and at the high school level. And that's the biggest problem I have right now with how 
these guys are being developed. You even see it in recruiting rankings. They have the dual threat quarterbacks and they have the pocket passers when essentially they're playing the same position and they are the same thing. Why is it that you have to separate mobility from a pocket guy when mobility should just be an asset or an additional tool in your toolbox that you can utilize as a quarterback? So are the mobile guys being developed differently than the pocket passer guys? Because when you look at football, as the game has gotten faster, as the defensive linemen have gotten more athletic, you need someone back there in the pocket that can move. Now, imagine if you were able to develop these guys just like you develop these pocket passes or put a lot of emphasis on the pocket guy. So I think when you look at the little, the little league level or Pop Warner level and the high school level, you see guys are not being developed properly. They're being developed to win games at that particular level. And I think when you look at developing to win games or putting guys in position to win games, I think that should be at the collegiate level because at the little league or high school level, in my opinion, it should be all about development and the growth of the player athletically and not, hey, we got to win these games. I get that everyone wants to win. Competitive game, and I'm a competitive guy. I want to win everything that I play. I totally get that, and I understand coaches that think that way. But when you look on the back end, let's say on a, in a pro game, when you see the questions are coming up about from these guys that, hey, this guy uh, can't make all the throws or whatever it may be, or whatever the case may be, the stereotype that we're going to talk about later as well, you wonder, okay, how is this guy taught? Why can't he get it, quote-unquote, get it together? Was he taught to, Was he never taught how to go progression to progression to check down? Was he never taught how to accurately throw on the move? Or was he, was, or was he always allowed to do what he wanted to do back there in the pocket, which had him successful at the Pop Warner level, high school, college level, and now he's in the pros? So I think the development of these guys is different. And I think if you want to see these guys on the same plane, let's say with pocket passer type players, then you have to look at how they were developed as a as a kid. And then you look at the NFL draft process. I am so tired of the same stereotypes. You can pick up any draft guide from the most popular one to the one that, let's say, a blogger comes out with or a columnist comes out with. You can pick up any one of these draft guides. You cannot even know anything about college football. Pick up the draft guide, look at the strengths and weaknesses of a quarterback, and you can instantly tell which one is black and which one is not black. It's funny because it goes by the same code, the same code words every time. You can look at the strengths, athletic, mobile, tremendous athlete, game breaker, fast. When you look at the weaknesses, they say can't read defenses, struggles with accuracy, not a leader, questionable leadership, decision making, all of those things. And you instantly know whether you have seen the guy play or not. That that's a black quarterback they're talking about. White guys, on the other hand, they get tremendous leadership. Jim Rat. Precise accuracy. I mean, they go above and beyond to compliment a guy's accuracy if he's not black. I mean, he can fit the world's problems in his pocket type of accuracy. He can fit a football through a keyhole. He has tremendous arm strength, but the accuracy, the smarts, the leadership. He's the guy that I want to marry my daughter. I would want him to impregnate my daughter. That's the type of 
above and beyond compliments they get. And it's unfair because some guys, and, I, and again, when, I, when we do scouting and we do our evaluations, we only see gray. We don't see black or white player or Hispanic player or whatever. We only see what you put out on film. And if what you put out on film doesn't jive with what we're saying, what we're saying, then feel free to call us out. But we're always keeping it 100 as far as how we grade and how we evaluate prospects. But you see the tired stereotypes all the time. You mean to tell me, like, you'll look at a Cam Newton coming out, and they'll say, oh, well, he played in a gimmicky offense. Oh, this this offense is Fisher-Price. It's made by Gerber. You know, they de- they <laughs> they look at his strengths, and they want to de-emphasize that and emphasize his shortcomings. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, he threw for 4,000 yards in college that one season. Yes, he's won a national championship at the junior college level and at the major college level. Yes, he hasn't lost a game uh, as a starting quarterback in any college, JUCO or at the FBS. Yes, he played the toughest conference in the SEC, but the offense he played in, my six-year-old daughter drew that up and can draw those plays up. That can't work in the NFL. What he's doing against these guys that are NFL first-round picks won't work in the NFL against those same guys that we picked in the in the NFL draft in the first round. It won't work. Never mind the fact that he did exactly what you would expect a guy of his skill set, of his talent to do. He dominated at that level. He dominated at the JUCO level, you know, but – all they want to do, all the media wants to do is de-emphasize someone's success. You look at, let's say, Teddy Bridgewater. Came into the league, uh, came through the draft process, excelled at Louisville. Louisville is not a powerhouse. They're a really good football team. They're what we like to call a uh, a team that's um, their major school. Let's say for basketball, they're a powerhouse football. They're right along the line with a lot of schools that are just good football programs but they're not powerhouses. You don't see Louisville and see them in a national light. You see Louisville in the same light you may see Memphis in football, that you may see, let's say, a team like UCF or UTEP. It doesn't matter. They're not a powerhouse. They're not an SEC. They're not in the Pac-12, whatever it may be. You don't look at Louisville football as you would Michigan football or USC. So I said all that to say this. Bridgewater dominated at Louisville. He actually elevated the play of the, the program and got these guys to a BCS bowl against Florida in which he played excellent in that game. Um, but coming through the draft process, people ignored three years of game tape, three years of game tape. That's what 36 games he's played, maybe a little bit more. Let's say 38 games, 38 games of elite level play only to say, you know what? His knees are skinny. He's quiet. I don't think he can lead a huddle. He can't command an NFL locker room. And we'll talk about that in a second, too. But that's just utter nonsense. He can't command grown men. As if you want a quarterback to come in. I want my quarterbacks to come in, slap me in the face, yoke me around by the neck, and tell me what to do. Beat me up and tell me what to do. That's the type of leadership I want from my quarterbacks. That's nonsense. He's too quiet. But on the flip side, you hear a white quarterback say, or or be are said about him. Well, you know that that quiet leadership. He just leads by example. He doesn't say a word. That's the type of silent leadership you want. But when it's a black quarterback, he's timid. He won't command an NFL locker room. Whatever the hell that means. 
you know, he won't command the respect of the veterans. You know, he won't command the respect of the community. Like people really go above and beyond with this nonsense and how they describe or de-emphasize the the successes of a black quarterback. It's hilarious when you see it play out in real life because you think, man, am I getting punked when I watch this? You're looking for the hidden cameras and everything. You know, but getting back to the point, Teddy Bridgewater was the best quarterback in that draft. The best quarterback in that draft. And you had teams at the top who passed on him. You had Jacksonville pass on him. You had the Texans pass on him. Those two teams needed quarterbacks. Cleveland passed on him. So when you look at a guy being knocked because he had a bad pro day, and just to get off topic a little bit, speaking of that pro day, going back to Cam Newton's year, Newton put up crazy numbers in the one season at Auburn. After Newton, Auburn fell off immediately. But in that pro day, well, you know, he I, I just don't know. He threw the seat. He can't he can't play in the NFL because he made an he had an incomplete pass in a pro day. I mean, and then he did the unthinkable. He actually gasped. He competed at the combine. And what did they do? The first pass that went out of bounds. You see, that's what we're talking about. Look at the accuracy. He can't play in the NFL if he's gonna miss this throw in this workout uh with this receiver he hasn't worked with before. Ignoring what you just saw on tape, ignoring all that and emphasizing him struggling in a workout and at the pro day. Gabbard, on the other hand, looked excellent at the pro day. Why? Because there's no pressure. It's easy to complete all you, all of your passes when you don't have pressure. You don't have pressure from opposing rushers, and you most importantly don't have pressure from the situations. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to emphasize those things and de-emphasize his shortcomings. Yeah, you know, it's just he 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 tried hard to win. You know, it, that's why he had those nine interceptions. That's why he threw that game-clinching interception versus Iowa when they had the lead <laughs> and driving in the middle of the field on third down. He bailed from phantom pressure, threw it directly to Micah Hyde, who promptly ran it back 60-plus yards for the game-winning touchdown. But, you know, he just didn't have the weapons. You know, it's just, you know, Newton, on the other hand, let a six and seven, a six and sixteen, basically, you know, to an undefeated record in a national title. But because he messed up in a pro day or threw a bad pass, he's going to be the biggest bust since. And they find, you know, they they find the biggest bust of all in Jamarcus Russell. And I honestly can sit here and debate why Jamar Jamarcus Russell, Jamarcus Russell, I'm sorry, uh, never had a chance to succeed. And we'll talk about that later in this podcast, but Teddy Bridgewater, best quarterback, teams passed on. Teams took, Jacksonville took Blake Bortles. No one knew who Bortles was until maybe the middle point of the season. Then all of a sudden, he became the next Ben Roethlisberger. On the flip side, when you look at a guy that has produced for three years at a high level at a school like Louisville, what you see in Teddy Bridgewater is, uh, you know, I don't know if he'll be able to throw the ball in the wind because every NFL game is windy. I don't know if he'll be able to throw the football in the rain because it rains each and every Sunday in the NFL. Yeah, I don't know if he'll be able to face the you know the tough competition, you know, because Florida Gators in the SEC wasn't tough enough or every team they face. I think people don't understand how hard it is to win football games. <laughs> you know, those guys on the other side of the field are on scholarship too. 
But so they de-emphasize all of Teddy Bridgewater's successes, his accuracy, his decision making. He protected the football. Well, he throws with gloves on. And you you realize how stupid I sound when I say that? That's what you heard about Teddy Bridgewater uh, throughout this draft process. And lo and behold, now all of a sudden, Newton wins Rookie of the Year. Oh, I, I mean, well, you know, I mean, we, we all knew he had it. He he must have, uh, you know, the, the coaching, you know, it. They, they really coached. They kept it simple for him because he can't add one plus one. They have to tell him the answers. That's what they try to do. They try to make it seem like all black quarterbacks can't even put together complete sentences. They can't even write their names because the offense, whatever it may be, is, oh, my God, this was so simple. He's not asked to do much. He's just asked to complete passes and move the offense down the field, which is ironically what you ask any quarterback to do. You see how dumb that sounds, how stupid people sound? And that's why people get frustrated because it's so obvious. And when you don't acknowledge the fact that there is blatant bias in both the written and in the broadcast media, it frustrates you. It frustrates the hell out of me because it's just nonsense. Why his offense is Fisher-Price, it's Gerber, it's baby food. Meanwhile, Blaine Gabbert's offense, which was simplistic in nature as well, and there's nothing wrong with a simple offense. I think if your offense is simple, you're doing a great job as a coach. Why? Because you keep it simple because football is not a hard game. It's an easy game, and you don't have to overcomplicate this. You don't need 1,200 plays in your playbook. You don't need this 15-sentence-long play call when you can just call a 34 dive. It doesn't have to be gun, run, gut check, 17, 36. You, you don't need all that. Football is an easy game. So if you keep your offense simple, your defense simple, I applaud you as a coach. You're doing it right. So you see during this draft process, the black quarterbacks, they automatically get bumped. You have to be premier. I mean, you have to be – They and this is the sad part about it. They make you out to be Superman. You better be Superman because if you throw one in completion, I mean, you see it right now with – with the whole Jameis Winston and uh, Marcus Mariota. You see it. Every pass Mariota throws is exquisite. It is the most awesome and accurate display of decision-making and leadership you can ever see. It's a two-yard dump-off. But, yeah, but you see how he controlled the huddle. They broke the huddle, man. He broke the huddle like a seasoned pro. He threw the heck out of that dump-off. Winston, on the other hand, can throw a, a <laughs> he can throw a, a perfect pass in between two defenders, hit a receiver in stride. You know, see, if this was the regular season against the 72 Steelers in the rain during an earthquake, when we have a national tragedy going on, that ball would have been picked off. That's the type of nonsense you hear when they break down black quarterbacks. And that you see this through the draft process. Uh, these guys, a lot of times, don't get the opportunity. That's the biggest thing. They don't get the opportunity to fail because they've already been stripped of a draft status You know, or, or they are already being asked to do something different. Oh, you have a little speed? Let's see you work out at receiver. I know you're fast. Go run around a little bit. Let me see you run around. Let me see how you catch this football here. I'm going to put you in a position to play a position that you haven't played your entire life. I'm going to ignore 
all of the games you've played at quarterback, and I'm going to project you as a receiver or a running back or a safety or a corner. Saw with Nick Marshall, and this is the part of the draft process that I don't like because you saw Nick Marshall lead Auburn to a championship game. He was he got better, and yes, uh, before everybody jumps in, well, you know he played in the secondary at Georgia before he transferred. I get that. I know that, obviously. But when he got to Auburn, he was a quarterback and got better every year. And you couldn't tell me he didn't get leaps and bounds better as a quarterback, as a passer. So when it comes down to the senior bowl, he had a tough decision because he already heard, well, you know, yeah, he he can't play quarterback. Now nah, he can't. And we can't let him in this game. And I don't know if this is true or not, but a lot of what he – the reason why he got into the Senior Bowl, because he agreed to switch to cornerback. Now, this man has played two years at a high level in the SEC as a quarterback and has gotten better. And every Sunday, when you look out there and you see a Matt Castle trot out there or Ron Fitzpatrick, you mean to tell me Nick Marshall couldn't do at least what they're doing? He has to play cornerback. And what happened that weekend in practice? He was getting roasted. Granted, he competed, and you have to applaud him for competing, but he was getting roasted. He didn't even get the opportunity to play quarterback in a game that lacked quarterbacks. And that was a tough thing to see because this guy clearly wanted to play quarterback. Otherwise, he would have stayed on the defensive side of the ball when he went to Auburn after he left Georgia. So this entire draft process you're going to see guys, there's some guys coming up this year in the draft, some lower-level guys, some guys on the FBS level. You're going to see how guys tear down Jacoby Brissett. You're going to see how they tear down Trayvon Boykin. Be ready for it because it will happen, and they're going to make it seem as though those guys are the worst of the worst quarterback prospects, that they can't possibly play quarterback better than Ryan Fitzpatrick, better than Christian Ponder, better than Brian Hoyer or Matt McGloin. They will make Jacoby Brissett and Trayvon Boykin out to be the worst quarterbacks in modern football history. Just keep an eye on and watch. I'll be right back. All right, I'm back, and welcome to Direct Snap. This is our first episode where we're talking about the black quarterback and why it's the toughest job in America. And now we transition to the pros. And this is what I like to talk about because you see the blatant biasness from all media. And granted, and let me throw this in here before you get these guys, these, well, actually guys to come in and talk about, oh, what about the white running back or the white secondary players? You are absolutely right, and I would love to have a podcast on that. That may be my next direct snap, talk about the nonsense that's going on with Zach Zinner, Tyler Varga, even out there in Minnesota with Zach Lyon. But this is a different episode. This is an episode about black quarterbacks and why it's the toughest job in America, not about white running backs and white cornerbacks. But I agree with you, and we will do a show on that as well because they are also getting slighted by the media, both broadcast and written. So back on topic. Let's go into the pros. Let's look at the narrative behind a Geno Smith, an E.J. Manuel, a Vince Young, a Russell Wilson, an RG3, and a greatest black quarterback of all time. I'm sorry, the greatest black backup quarterback of all time, Tavares Jackson. 
You know, he 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 also may be in a running with Charlie Batch as the greatest black backup quarterback. Maybe Jason Campbell. You know, that's a that's a you know what? That's a topic that we all should have. Who's the best black backup quarterback of all time? You guys marinate on that. Um, in the meantime, let's talk about the guys that are in the league now. Uh, and it's unfortunate. This is the type of narrative that you get when you're a black quarterback. Your job is to come in and win the Super Bowl year one. Russell Wilson is the luckiest man alive. And even then, he still gets criticized. Because here's the thing. And here's the part people don't want to acknowledge. Russell Wilson came to a football team that was 7-9 and 7-9. The two years prior to him getting there under Pete Carroll. He gets there. The offense instantly jumps. And you know what? They go to the divisional playoffs. And you could make a case that they probably should have knocked off Atlanta and would have played San Francisco in the championship game. But they did win a game in the playoffs his rookie year. The second season, they go to the Super Bowl, and they blow out America's quarterback, Peyton Manning, in the Broncos. They blew those guys out. Then, well, you know, it's a fluke. You know, anybody could get to the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, Saints got to the Super Bowl in 09. They haven't been back. Anybody can get there. They get back to the Super Bowl last year and come within a play of winning it again. Probably with one of the bonehead coaching calls, and I hate calling out coaches, but I, that that right there, they <laughs> they really overthought that play. So they could have had th- uh, two Super Bowls in back-to-back years, Russell Wilson. Now, rightfully so, he wants to get paid. All you heard from the media, well, you know, yes, they went to two Super Bowls. They won one. They've won 12 games or 11 games since he's been there, 11 games or more. But, I mean, it's because of the running game and the defense. The running game and the defense. I tell you, it's the running game and the defense. Not Russell Wilson. As if playing running back and playing defense has anything to do with the quarterback throwing the football. Because growing up as a Saints fan, I know all there is to know about running game and defense and no quarterback play. I grew up in the era of the Dome Patrol from 86 to 93. Terrorized teams. The number one defense in the league, number one or number three. Between that, they fluctuated between one and five. Let's say one and five. But a lot of times they were number one defense in the league. The Saints were losing games 13-9 because they couldn't get into the end zone. The Saints did not win a playoff game in four years of getting there when they hadn't been to the playoffs in their existence. Defense got them to the playoffs. Offense couldn't put points on the board, couldn't put touchdowns on the board. Why? Because they had poor quarterback play. Had some good running backs. Ruben Mays was an excellent running back. One rookie of the year. Dalton Hillier was an excellent running back. Craig Hayward was an excellent running back. Quarterback play was spotty. So now you have Russell Wilson getting to the Super Bowl, getting a running game and a defense, and being a piece of the puzzle and helping the Seahawks get over the hump, well, you know, I mean, anybody, you put, you put, I mean, listen, you put anybody behind that running game and that defense, and they will take the team to the Super Bowl. Really. Because Tavares Jackson was behind that same running game and defense, and they got the 79. Charlie Whitehurst was behind that same running game and defense, and he got put on the bench. So, but Russell Wilson goes to the Super Bowl, and all of a sudden, like we talked about earlier, they de-emphasize the success of the black quarterback. 
So what they focus on, well, you know, he's really not playing a quarterback position how it's supposed to be played. Listen, I don't care if he's back there doing backflips. They got to the Super Bowl twice. They won one of them. They should have won two. Yeah, but you got to, in order to do this consistently, you have to do it from the pocket. Phillip Rivers is probably the most underrated pocket passer in the game to date. How many Super Bowls he has led the Chargers to? And the Chargers have had probably one of the best running backs of the era in LaDainian Tomlinson. Probably one of the best tight ends, uh, arguably one of the best tight ends of the era in Antonio Gates. And they've had a pretty good defense. But it's Russell Wilson's defense and running game is the reason why they're having success. And that's the biggest thing that people want to ignore. That's the biggest thing people don't want to talk about. That's clear bias because if Russell Wilson, if Ryan Tannehill, whom everyone has anointed as the next Dan Marino, was doing anything remotely similar to what Russell Wilson has done, he will be already held as the greatest quarterback in life. Ryan Tannehill, you see in this preseason, yes, he has played well, but here's also the thing that they don't say. Because if it was black quarterback, if it was a black quarterback, they'll find every little nuance to argue why he's not successful. But what they're ignoring about Ryan Tannehill is that he's hitting all checkdowns, the occasional shot down the field, which is fine. Your job as a quarterback is to move the ball down the field. So I have no problem with the way he's playing. But let's just call a spade a spade. He's not out there setting a quarterback in world on fire. And his biggest problem is not his ability to throw the football. It's his ability to handle pressure. That's both from the rush and the situation. Miami quietly should have been in the playoffs the last two seasons under Ryan Tannehill. But why? In must-win situations, end-of-game situations, critical situations versus pressure, he folds. Stats will look great. But in the pressure situations, which is football is all about, he folds. Russell Wilson, on the flip side, in pressure situations, he excels. That's quarterbacking. I need you to be the coolest when the game is the hottest. I need you to be stable when the game around you is shaky. That's quarterback play. And Russell Wilson is arguably the second best quarterback in the game right now. You can argue between him and Tom Brady because I do think Aaron Rodgers is clear-cut the number one. But when you look at Russell Wilson, he doesn't get that benefit of the doubt. They shouldn't pay him because it's not him. It's not He's not the reason why they're having success. Even though since he's gotten there, they've been in contention for the Super Bowl, winning one, should have won two, probably could have gotten the three since he's been there. They might even go this year out of the NFC. But he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. Ryan Tannehill completes a couple of six-yard passes in the preseason, and all of a sudden, the Dolphins are on their way. Now, granted, I do think the Dolphins will be good this year. They have a great team around him, and they've always had a great team around him, quietly. And that's the other part that you don't get. I mean, you look at, let's say somebody, uh, let's say like an RG3. You have an RG3 there who had success as a rookie, running the pistol, doing things that made him successful in, in college. They implemented it in the pros. Year two, he gets injured. They start to do different things. They start to run him more when really he wasn't a runner per se at Baylor. He took off when the passing was was taken away. Then he took off. He just so happened to be a, a world-class sprinter. It wasn't like he was an option quarterback or a guy that took off 
because he just wanted to run. He was a passer. He has tremendous accuracy. But the team around him hasn't been up to par. That offensive line hasn't been up to par. Now, granted, he does help the offensive line and the running game because of his mobility. They don't rush as much, which is why you see Alfred Morris have outstanding numbers, You know, which is why you saw Warwick doesn't have outstanding numbers when he had Michael Vick back there at quarterback because Vick took away some of the pressure. But that's just getting schematics. That's if people really want to talk football. We can talk football all day. But no one wants to admit RG3 didn't get the help that Ryan Tannehill has has gotten. RG3 didn't get the help that, let's say, an Andrew Luck has. The f- This is why I like what the Colts did. The Colts drafted Andrew Luck, who was a phenomenal quarterback. They drafted Andrew Luck. First thing they do, let's go get him somebody that can catch because that's important. You're only as good as your, your options you're throwing to. They go get Kobe Fleener. They go get Dwayne Allen. They get T.Y. Hilton. The Panthers draft Cam Newton. Who do they get? A linebacker. Some tackles. A fullback. How does that help you as a quarterback? Andrew Luck gets all sorts of weapons that he already had on the roster as well. Reggie Wayne and company. You know, Ryan Tannehill gets receivers after receivers. They drafted receivers. They brought in Mike Wallace. They had a receiver on the roster already in Brandon Marshall. They got rid of him. They had Reggie Bush, who was a dynamic player. They got rid of him. They bring in Lamar Miller. They bring in, uh, you know, new tight ends. They got rid of a, a, an excellent tight end in Clay. They bring in Cameron. They have this receiver. They have Jordan, uh, you know, Jarvis Landry. All of these weapons. Russell Wilson's still out there with, and, and, I, and I think those guys are solid. And they had opportunities to increase the talent around him, but they didn't. But that's okay. Those guys are solid in Doug Baldwin and, and Jermaine Curse. They just added a real good weapon in the passing game in Jimmy Graham. But that offensive line is in shambles. And when the flip side, when, when Ryan Tannehill takes sacks, he takes sacks. What's the first thing that they say? Oh, his offensive line is terrible. When it's a white quarterback, it's everybody else's problem. When it's a black quarterback, Getting sacked, it's because he's holding the ball too long. Can't read defenses. You saw this in the preseason. People were crediting Mariota and his pocket presence when the offensive line gave him 85 seconds back there in the pocket. Well, look how he's scanning the defense. And that's always the 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 line that they, they tow when they talk in quarterbacks. If it's a quarterback you like, let's just say for the sake of this discussion, if it's a black quarterback, it's he's holding the ball too long. He can't read defenses. He had to make the de- he has to make a decision. If it's a white quarterback, oh, he's scanning the defense. He's reading the coverage. He is doing a great job deciphering the intricacies of the defense that's across from him. It's crazy, you know. So in the pros, you you got guys like Geno Smith, who was put in the worst possible situation for a quarterback. They just got talent at receiver with Brandon Marshall. They added Jason Morrow last year to go along with Eric Decker. That's a formidable trio right there. Cumberland is serviceable. I like him as well. They drafted Devin Smith. They have talent now at receiver that he can be competitive. He can be competent. But all you're going to hear is Geno can't throw. When he set every record at West Virginia. But that's college though, man. That's that's college, man. You, you can't 
You, you can't look at college. If that's the case, why not find the worst college quarterback possible? Because since college doesn't matter, and let him have success in the pros. Because, again, it doesn't matter what you do in college. But Geno Smith was in the worst possible situation. And from his first snap, his first snap, it's like, you know what? This guy, not he's not the guy. He can't do it. We need to, we need to find a way to trade for uh, Kellen Clemens because all he needs is a shot. If we just had a guy like Matt Castle, you know, or Brian Hoyer, a rah-rah leadership type of a guy, maybe we could trade for Matt McGloin. These are things people were saying. People actually think Ryan Fitzpatrick, who has had numerous opportunities to show he's a starting quarterback, is better than Geno Smith. It's it's laughable, but it's mind-boggling that people actually believe this. Given the situation, let's look at Ryan Fitzpatrick last year in Houston. The Texans, if they ever get consistent play from the quarterback, that team will go to the Super Bowl. Imagine last year they could have had Clowney and Bridgewater. But I digress. Ryan Fitzpatrick had the the Texans in position to, to get to the playoffs and go far. But what happened? He folded versus the Colts. Both Colts games, he had he didn't have a great game. He folded when they needed him to come through in the clutch. And that's been the biggest issue. You see it right now with uh, Marcus Mariota and Zach Mettenberger. It's funny how the media spins this into, let's say, oh, man, look at the Titans. They have two starting quarterbacks. Someone right now, if I'm the Jets or the Bills, Or who else has a black quarterback? If I'm the Redskins, if I'm the Seahawks, I will find a way to get either Mettenberger or Mariota on my roster or Mike Glennon because those guys are tearing it up in the preseason. They just need an opportunity to be successful. They need a chance to play. These guys have to get somewhere so they can start. Let's forget the fact that they were starters prior to teams drafting quarterbacks really high. So you were the reason why that team had a number one or number two pick. Let's free, let, let, let's let's rewind that. They were the reason why the teams that they're on as backups now had the first round pick or early first round pick to pick the guys that are starting in front of them. But they deserve an opportunity to be starters. What are you talking about? And speaking of that Tennessee organization, let's go back to Vince Young. 31 and 17 as a starter of that football team, despite the coach not wanting anything to do with you as a quarterback. You also saved his job twice. One rookie of the year, got the Titans to the playoffs, and which they haven't sniffed since you left. Twice. But you're terrible. 31 and 17 as the starter. Chris Johnson had his best seasons with Vince Young. And the only receiver that they went out to try to grab for Vince Young, Kenny Britt. Really? Andrew Luck got two tight ends, a, a dynamic receiver. Tannehill got all kind of receivers rolling through Miami like crazy. And they drafted Kenny Britt and some and some fullbacks. 
until eventually going to go out there and try to come, try to get better as a passer. It's funny, man, when you when you really sit down and look at it. Then they draft Jake Locker, who was 50 times worse than Vince Young. But Vince Young was the problem. That's what they tell you. But your eyes never lie. And Vince Young is a guy that did exactly what he did in college in the pros. But no second chance. Oh, he got signed by the Eagles. We're not talking about getting picked up. We're talking about getting another chance to start. Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick gets cut. Matt Flynn gets cut. And teams, and they get cut for poor play. Castle, cut. Poor play. Ponder, cut. Poor play. Hoyer, terrible. McGloin, cut. But they'll get picked up and get the chance to start over someone that has started and has had a lot of success. It's amazing to me. But people ignore that. But that's what's going on in the NFL. You know, and I talked about it earlier about people bringing up guys like Charlie Batch, Jason Campbell, Seneca Wallace, Rodney Pete, David Garrard, Tavares Jackson. I, I really want you guys to, to tell me who's the best black backup quarterback of all time. Um, but when you look at the guys that didn't get that opportunity to have long careers as starters, and I feel as though we got cheated, Sean King who was a tremendous player at Tulane. I feel as though we got cheated from his career in Tampa Bay. Once Gruden got there, guess who's the first person to go? Get rid of Sean King. Bring in someone average. Sean King was what you if – you, if Sean King, I think, was ahead of his time. If Sean King played college football now, he'd be a, 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 you know, a first-round pick, a high pick. He was precise with his passes and did it at Tulane. So you have Sean King. You have Taj Boy, who's getting jerked around in the NFL. I mean, we sat there and watched three preseason games of Landry Jones showcasing his average ability, and we didn't see Taj Boy under center or at quarterback not once. And he played well in the FXFL. I'll cover those games. He was playing well. Didn't get an opportunity. Adrian McPherson didn't get an opportunity. He had to go and excel in the Arena League before getting that opportunity back in the NFL. Landed with the Saints. Behind Drew Brees, there's no chance he was going to play. They let him go. And the backup quarterbacks now for the Saints are just awful. But McPherson had to go back to the Arena League, tear it up. Now he's in Canada with the Toronto Argonauts. We got cheated from Charlie Ward. We did not see Charlie Ward play football. Charlie Ward was Teddy Bridgewater before Teddy Bridgewater. But because the league was stupid at the time and wanted him to play another position, didn't want to draft him as a quarterback, didn't want to draft him high after he put together a, an impressive season and career at Florida State and won the Heisman Trophy. Nah, go off and do something else. Play basketball. We got cheated from watching Charlie Ward. Rakeem Cato right now is playing good football in Montreal. He's not playing great ball. He's playing good football. He has them competitive. You mean to tell me Rakeem Cato, who set all kind of records at Marshall, isn't better than Matt McGloin, Tom Savage, Christian Ponder? He doesn't deserve to be at least a backup in the NFL. That's the problem. We that's that's the whole crux of this argument. You know, Troy Smith is another one I thought had a raw deal, maybe a little bit before his time. 
Because had Troy Smith come out now, he'd be Tyrod Taylor. You know, didn't get the opportunity. Yes, he had. He was going back and forth with Alex Smith. Mike Singletary. That's a, that's gonna be another point. Oh, Mike Singletary was the coach. How you can't say that? He didn't get the opportunity, man. So, it is what it is. And that's the problem. A lot of guys don't get the opportunity. We've gotten cheated from so many good quarterbacks in this game, good black quarterbacks in this game, because they don't get that second chance. They don't even get the opportunity to, to fail before they run out of town. Be right back to wrap up this segment. Damn. Welcome back to Direct Snap. I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook. We had a nice, long podcast uh, this first episode, kicking this off. And we're going to wrap this thing up talking about Terrell Pryor's odyssey. Here's another guy and how he was treated pre-draft coming into the league. A lot of people looked at him and saw 4-3. They saw 6-5, 230. Oh, my God, he's a wide receiver. He can't play pro- He can't play quarterback in the pros. He can't read a defense. He won't be able to break down coverage. Can't do none of that. Came out of a read option offense, and I have to stop people right there because therein lies the blatant bias and the subconscious, you know, prejudices you see from these people when they talk about these black quarterbacks. No one wants to talk about how Jim Trestle ran a pro-style offense at Ohio State, and Terrell Pryor was under center. He had to do half rollouts, waggles, boots, three, five, seven-step drops, played out the gun. Did everything you asked Tom Brady to do, you know, but because he's 6'5", 230, and just so happens to run a 4'3", he can't possibly play quarterback. I don't know why that's viewed as a negative. I want my quarterback to have athleticism. That's why it's so hard to defend the Seahawks. It's so hard to defend the Green Bay Packers because of that mobility. That's why it's going to be hard to defend the Titans because of Mariota's mobility. That's why it's going to be hard to defend anybody that has a quarterback that can move. It just so happens Terrell Pryor ran a 4-3, you know, and that's now a negative. And when you look at that Oakland Raiders team, again, no help. Quarterback is carrying the football team, carrying the offense. Coach wants no part of Terrell Pryor. Can't wait to Terrell Pryor, uh, you know, gets out of there so he can put in Matt McGloin. People really thought Matt McGloin was better than Terrell Pryor. Matt McGloin wasn't better than Terrell Pryor in high school, college, or the pros. Yet, for the Oakland Raiders, they wanted you to believe that he was better than Terrell Pryor. Well, Terrell Pryor just struggles. He takes those sacks. Okay, fine. He takes sacks. Why are you having him drop back 40 times a game anyway? Why are you calling these, these quote-unquote, zone reader, read option plays, why can't you just call your regular offense? What's funny, and this was this happened in a game versus, I want to say, the Jets. And this was, matter of fact, this was Terrell Pryor's first start versus the Indianapolis Colts, in which they almost won that game, came down to last play. They were running traditional offense, and they were moving the football down the field. Versus the Jets, they started out running zone read, read zone, read option, all that stuff like that. Jets was stuffing it. They switched to a pro-style traditional offense, 
boom, 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 down the field, touchdown. Just because you have a guy that has mobility doesn't mean you have to transform your offense into an option offense. Do what you do well and allow the quarterback to play within that scheme, utilizing his mobility. But don't make his mobility a reliance. Make it an asset. And see, that's the part where people get confused. And meanwhile, while Terrell Pryor was the starter for the Raiders, they were three and six with no talent. But they couldn't wait to get him out of there and put Matt McGlowan in, and they promptly lost the rest of the games. They went one and ten, I believe, after that. So, but guess who's still in Oakland? Guess who's half the change? Guess who has to change position? And that's the other part, too. Terrell Pryor constantly fought against it. No, I'm a quarterback. I want to play. I want to play. I want to play quarterback. I get that. Yo, I commend him for that. You know, and numerous teams gave him an opportunity, but you think they really gave him an opportunity? Oh, it was just, okay, let's bring him in, tell him he's going to play quarterback, and then try to slowly tell him that he's going to make this team if he decides to switch positions. And I love what Terrell Pryor did when he left the Bengals and that fake opportunity he got out there. He tweeted out his highlights from practice. Talk about, I guess I got to move to receiver. And he was throwing darts. Pass after pass, hitting receiver in stride, splitting coverages with his passes. But yet you have him now with the Browns about to not make the team because he can't play receiver. People just think, and this is what I hate about talking football with anybody, because a lot of people don't know football. And the reason, and I can get into the reason why that happens, but I don't, I don't want to alienate a lot of people. But people think just because you're tall and fast, that makes you a receiver. There's way more that goes into playing receiver than being tall and fast. Tall and fast is not even a skill. You know, that's that's attributes. Can you catch is a skill. Can you run routes is a skill. Can you elude once you catch the football is a skill. But being tall and fast, that's genetics. That has nothing to do with your skill set. So now you have Pry out there trying to look like a receiver in Cleveland. Won't make the team. He'll get cut. He hasn't even played in the preseason. Why? Because he's constantly hurt because he's playing receiver. He's playing a position. He has never played in his life trying to make the team along with guys that have played that position their entire life. How does that make sense? You know, and people will quickly point out, well, look at Matt Jones. Ha ha. I got you. Matt Jones. Ha ha. Outlier. The one person you want to, well, if it's one, you can't say all. But they do that with black quarterbacks all the time. And it's sad that Terrell Pryor probably won't make the team because he's a guy that definitely can win at this level. I mean, again, you look at Matt Castle, you look at Christian Ponder, Fitzpatrick, Hoyer, all those guys. You don't tell me, you can't tell me Terrell Pryor is not better than those guys playing quarterback. He would instantly upgrade Houston's offense. Cleveland is out there with Josh McCown. And you're going to tell me that McCown is going to give them the best chance to win after he had his audition in Tampa, which helped lead them to the first pick of the draft. But again, we can go on and on about these topics. But again, it's clear bias 
And it's tough for a black quarterback to, to succeed in the NFL. That's why the ones that do, they deserve a ton of credit, which is why I think when you look at Warren Moon and what he did and how he stuck to his guns, he deserves a statue in every city. Because here's a guy, after excelling in the Pac-10 at a high level, was told he wasn't going to play quarterback. He had to move to receiver. He was like, you know what? I'm a quarterback. I'm not even going to the NFL draft. I'm going to go to Canada. This guy won five straight Great Cup championships, which is their Super Bowl. Five straight. You think after winning one Great Cup, they'd be like, okay, well, yeah, let's come down to the league and, you know, we'll, we'll bring in as a quarterback. No, he had this. Imagine after winning the third one. Nothing. Five straight championships before he got that opportunity in the NFL and made the Hall of Fame, not only just in the Canadian Football League, but the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, but he stuck to his guns, which is why most of these guys, I cringe when I see them switching positions. Unless you're an option quarterback, let's say like a, an uh, Eric um, Crouch or Tommy Frazier, you know, someone that struggled throwing the football, Birdie Manuel played in an option offense at Rice. People will point to Randall L, but you saw even at Indiana, they had him playing in you know, they had him playing sometimes at receiver. You know, they'd had him moving around and doing doing different things. You saw he wasn't really a pro quarterback. You saw that. You didn't see that with guys like Terrell Pryor or now in Pittsburgh with Tyler Murphy. They weren't even offered the opportunity to fail for a full season before they were talking about, oh, you know, moving to receiver. Tyler Murphy is a better quarterback than Landry Jones. And he's now pinning his hopes to make it in the NFL from catching passes from a quarterback that he's better than. That's the whole irony of the situation. And that is also how we're going to end this first episode of Direct Snap. Again, follow us on Twitter at FBallGamePlan. Also on Instagram, Football Game Plan. Also Facebook, Football Game Plan fan page. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash football game plan. And to find these shows archived, footballgameplan.com slash podcast. I appreciate you guys taking time to listen. And you know what? Maybe episode two, we will talk about the white running back and the white cornerback. I may do that. I may put it out there for you guys to see what you guys want me to talk about directly on the second episode of Direct Snap. I'm Emory Hunter's Art of Playbook, and I will hit you guys up on the rebound. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh.